You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell, and in this episode 82... We're going to talk about teams and the way they work and engage. My guest is team expert, author and speaker Dermot Crowley, and at the heart of his work is a really powerful concept. Teams are either in a state of friction or flow. Just on hearing those words, a state of friction or flow, so many of you listening will instantly know where your team is at. Do things move along smoothly, the sharing of information, collaboration, prioritisation, the way you spend your time? Or does your team suffer from the jolting symptoms of friction, bumps large and small, that so often are created by the team itself, making progress hard, communication ineffective, and the culture tired, or worse, toxic? In the conversation you're about to hear, Dermot describes what it means to be in a state of flow and the things that we can do to move from a state of friction. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dermot Crowley. Dermot Crowley, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you, David. Look, Dermot, it's great to have you on the show, mate. You you have written a really neat little book called Smart Teams and the way that they communicate, congregate, and collaborate. I really enjoyed reading it. And what's jumped out to me, and I'm assuming it's kind of the central thesis of the book, is this the difference between teams, they're either in a state of friction or they're in a state of flow. Have I extracted the number one message from the book? Yeah, look, I reckon have i um i've been in the productivity space for going on 20 years now and while a lot of my time has been spent helping people to work personally more productively so essentially what we used to call time management i've been frustrated with the fact that i'm often training people who absolutely love the difference the training makes to their personal world their working life if you like but then they often go back into a culture that just kills their productivity all over again. Mm. And it's it's very hard to stay productive when everything in your organization is actually working against you. And that's kind of what I call the, the friction. I, I often use an analogy of a, a performance race car. There's two ways you can make it go faster. You can improve its engine, and that's, I, I guess, personal productivity. Or you can reduce the drag or the resistance as the car moves forward. And, and that's, that's really what I talk about in smart teams. How do we help organizations create a culture that actually uh, allows productivity to flow rather than us constantly running into this friction that drags our productivity down? It's a point very well made in your book, that, that phenomena that we all know too well, where we go off and, and get a little bit of training, whether it's that we've read a great book or we've listened to a great TED talk or we've been to a great workshop, whatever it is, something that has inspired us to try and change our behavior, be more effective, be more productive, be better at what we do. But then going back in the workplace, and I know a lot of listeners will relate to this, no matter how good your intentions, as you say, it's the culture of the organization we're in or the team we're in, 
that can almost, I hate to use this, this phrase, drag us back down when we're trying to make changes. It's really hard to do it in isolation. It's a point well made in your book. Now, when people are listening to us speak, Dermot, and we talk about teams that are in a state of friction, I think we'll all understand that pretty quickly and we'll either identify that as the type of team we're in right now, or we'll think about teams we've been in the past that you know just by the word, because friction is such a great word, that they were teams that were in a state of friction. Let's just flesh that out a little bit and talk about what it's like to be in a team that's in a state of friction and, and what are all those little things that are going on commonly in organizations that push teams in into that state of friction. You do such a nice job of outlining them in the book. Well, none of them are, are groundbreaking kind of things from left field. They're, they're things that we all know about, but you, you put them together so neatly. Oh, thank you. Um, I reckon that what tends to happen in most organizations, that we've got to re- recognize that we're all working in very fast-paced, complex organizations. We've got a lot of pressure on us. And that's where friction can occur, you know, and and the thing is, nobody really means to cause friction. It just happens because we're busy and we're moving at a million miles an hour and we we cause all this collateral damage, if you like. So I think most people will recognize that friction happens every time they interact with other people. And it's a two way street. So I cause friction for you and you cause friction for me. And if we can just reduce the friction a little bit. It makes everyone's life a little more easy. What are the, so, what are the sort you know, of things guess, that cause friction? When you say that, you know, I cause it for you and you cause me friction, what are those things that are happening between, as you say, well-intentioned teammates, well-intentioned professionals in a workplace who are not meaning to do it? What are, what are the things that are actually happening? Yeah. So look, I've structured a book around three core areas where friction tends to occur. The first one is how we communicate uh, with other people. And look, primarily that is still email. It's not the only communication method, but it's the main one. So, you know, if we if we look at that, um, some of the issues are around the sheer volume of email that we're dealing with. So, you know, what used to be people getting 30 or 40 emails a day is now people getting three or 400 emails mm. a day. Yeah. As a huge amount of friction, and that isn't spam. It's often internally generated communications that don't actually add any value. So there's a there's a whole area we can delve into there. And the second core area is when we congregate with other people. So when we meet, and meetings are always up there as one of the key productivity drains in most organisations. I think we have too many meetings. They go for too long. They involve too many people, and they're not well organised. So There's a lot of friction there as well. And then the third main area will be with how we collaborate on things like projects and just how we work together as humans. And and again, there's a huge amount of room for improvement, if you like, when it comes to how we manage project information, project progress, how we get these complex pieces of work done together as a group. So they'd be the three main areas that I see friction coming to life on a day-to-day basis. And let's take each of those head on. First, let's describe what you see in organizations, the the default position that you come across in busy organizations. And then let's talk through the, uh, you know, what you recommend, what, what, what's your, mm. you know, after you've diagnosed, what do you prescribe for these organizations? Number one, communication. It's not just about email, but email is such a strong and recurring theme in your book. 
And I've got to admit, it's something that I find myself talking about quite a lot as well. Just this idea of being tied to your inbox, the kind of pressure it puts you under, the drain, the stress of constant email. It seems in so many organizations as if it's just an accepted part of the job. And while people complain about it, they don't tend often to question its validity, but you very much do question its validity. Tell us some of the worst stories that you hear. Tell us some of the real problems that you come across and and then talk us through how we can fix this problem of being weighed down by email. Yeah, look, uh, you know, I've got a million and one more stories. Email <laughs> is such a, a disaster zone. Yeah. So the worst inbox I've ever come across had 129,546 emails in. No, that's um, ridiculous. Yes. And it was the IT director of a large organization, and he was kind of proud of it. Oh, you know, God. It's very, very scary. Yeah. You know, as I said, the volumes of emails that we're just getting these days. And I think one of the real problems is a lot of people become victims of the inbox. Mm. They think that this is normal and there's nothing they can do about it. So they think that the volume of email is just the way it is. And it doesn't have to be. A lot of those emails are unnecessary, uh, they're not adding value. And we don't have to have them come into our inbox in the first place. So the the first thing I say to people is don't be a victim. You have to actively manage your inbox. And and that's just not how you, you process your emails. It's also about the sort of guarding structures you put in place to try and stop irrelevant emails coming in there in the first place. What do you mean by that? What can you do there? So look, we've got all the tools at our our fingertips. You know, most organizations I would deal with would still use either Microsoft Outlook or or maybe they're using Gmail or, you know, some organizations would use Lotus Notes. That's pretty much um, the the suite of tools that are used for email management in corporate Australia. Now, all of them are able to, number one, block unwanted emails. Yeah. And that's not just, you know, spam. It's, it's, if, that you don't want to receive that email anymore, you can just very easily right click and say, yeah, add that to my block, send the list, don't want to get that anymore. Yeah. You, you can't necessarily block your boss. Okay. Yeah. Usually you can't block internal emails, but you can do that for a lot of newsletters or marketing emails. You can set up rules to automatically divert emails that you um, don't necessarily need to see the minute they come in. It could be newsletters, they could be informational emails. And you can move them into a folder to be read later on. And that, that that reduces the strain in your inbox. But I think we also need to think about how we can reduce the noise that we create for other people in our team. So two of the biggest contributors to noise that I see with email would be CC and mm. Reply All. Yeah, yeah. Most people just have no idea how to use those tools effectively. I, I was running the workshop just a couple of weeks ago in a large corporate I had 15 people in the room. And when I run training on personal productivity, people are actually live in their inboxes while I'm running the training. So as we went through this training, a message was sent round to the whole team. So this is a team of about 300 people. And what started to happen was people started to reply all to this message. Yeah. So each time 300 people were getting an email yeah. and, and we started to watch this happen and a few minutes after it all started, um, you know, someone finally stepped up and sent an email around to the whole group to say, can you please stop replying all? Yeah. And then it was mind boggling. A few minutes later, someone else replied all and said, yeah, good idea. Oh. And it, was just, it was like a train wreck. It was yeah. just going on yeah. for hours. Yeah. 
Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. So there are some rules that we can put in place. That we can we can divert certain emails. We can get rid of the list that we're on. But I suspect those kind of list emails, uh, a bit of junk email, a bit of advertising, is as annoying as they are. They're not what we're talking about when we're talking about the problem inbox that so many of your clients and my clients have. We're talking about internal emails, emails within the organization where, as you say, there's reply all and CC'd in, where you can't put rules up about that because some of them might be important. There might be some things buried deep within that 150 emails that's really important to my day and that I'm going to have to action. And you actually make a really nice link between an overrun inbox and one of the other poisons of the workplace is being in a constant panic of doing urgent work. Because we spend so much time tendering to our inbox, we're losing productivity time. And also, mm-hmm. there's every chance that of those 280 unread emails, there's something in there that's actually quite important that if you had have done three days ago, it would have been fine. But if you do it this afternoon, it's going to be a fire that you're putting out. Yeah. So- Look, it, there's a really strong link between personal productivity and team productivity. So, you know, one side of that is we should be on top of our own inboxes. And in my first book, Smart Work, I talk a lot about getting your inbox down to zero on a regular basis so yeah. that you have clarity and you have control over what you need to do and you're not leaving things until the last minute. But then the other side of that, when I talk more about this in Smart Teams, is we need to dial down the urgency in organizations. Yeah. Every single organization that I work in, no matter what the industry, will tell me, you don't understand, Dermot. We're a very reactive industry and you know we need to be reactive to our clients. And I, I hear it every day. Yeah. But the reality is it's not industries that are reactive. It's not organizations that are reactive. It's people and their work styles that cause reactivity yeah. and urgency every day of the week. So I try to get organizations to dial down the urgency, and I believe that this is where it becomes a leadership issue, mm. because I guarantee you, when I work with a team that is very reactive, I just need to look at the leadership team, and I find that they've got a reactive work style. They cause this culture of reactivity, and there are things that we can do to dial it down. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and I love the link you make to urgency. And we're not, we're not saying that emails are the only cause of urgency or Urgency is is not the only problem caused by email, but they're certainly a, a powerful pair. You mm. did a, a really nice job partway through your book of offering up some alternatives to email. And, and let's face it, so many organizations that I've worked in and that you work in, people default automatically to email and forgetting the other really obvious options that they have. And you you give us a really nice quadrant model. You talk about the two variables of time and formality. So if it has to be done at the same time, then why not have a conversation as an informal option? And if it has to be done at the same time, but it can be for, it has to be formal, then have a meeting. And on the other end, if it can be done anytime, therefore, you know, the other person doesn't have to engage with you right now. Why not share a post on LinkedIn or Yammer or any of the other online tools? And as a fourth option, if it needs to be formal, and it can't be a post like that, and it can be done anytime, then send an email. The point being, email is just one of the options. There's also the option of getting up out of your chair and having a conversation. There's the option of 
picking up the phone and having a phone call or having a meeting or sharing a post or just waiting till you bump into them next time in the hall, depending on the urgency. But all too often, people in organizations, because it's a habit, because it's part of the culture, they will just send an email. And worse still, they'll copy in every Tom, Dick and Harry Mm -hmm. who might potentially maybe have some small interest in the topic that you're talking about. And that done n number of times across an organization every day just creates this almost disgusting number of emails flying around the the web of the world. That's right. That's right. In fact, I had a conversation with a client today who shared with me an old boss that he used to work with, had a, a personal goal that was he wouldn't send more than 20 emails a day. Mm. And as soon as he reached his limit of 20, he would just force himself to go up and have a conversation with people or pick up the phone. I think yeah. that's such a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is a great idea. Something else you said in your book made me realize something that I do might not be perfect. I'm always very proud of this habit that I'm in, Dermot. If I send an email to someone and I'm on site, I will get up out of my chair and go and talk to them and say, mm-hmm. hey, I just sent you an email. And often we can have the conversation. They don't even need to read the email, but I've yeah. got that as a backup. Maybe they're not at the desk. Maybe they can't talk to me right now. But I just like that contact. But you made me realize that I'm also just stuffing up their in- inbox just like everybody else is. But I guess that's another issue around this is that sending emails can often be done in lieu of human contact. And that's yeah. something else. We, we hide behind email we're almost out of the habit of going and having conversations. It seems as though in some workplace, the only time that you have a conversation with someone is when you have these formal meetings and that's number two. We'll get to that soon. And they have their own problems as well. So look, let's move off email now, mate. It's, it's a really rich topic just in itself. And it's hard to believe that this fabulous tool that we all thought 20 years ago was amazing, groundbreaking. Isn't that going to save us time? We humans have done something <laughs> weird to it to the point where instead of being a fabulous productivity tool, it is actually very quickly starting to weigh us down. It's a, a bit of a, a weight around our neck. Isn't it amazing mm. what we humans can do? That's nice. And I think I say in the book, Ray Tomlinson, who, who's uh, often credited with bringing email to the, the modern workplace, he never meant for it to be no. what it turned into. He, and, yeah, uh, we wouldn't. All right, so we're, we're talking through the three causes of friction in a team. And the first one was communication, and, and it's very much a topic of email is, is heavy in that one. The second one is where we congregate, where we get together as members of a team. Tell us what are some of the most common woes you experience with your clients around congregation. Sure. So look, when it comes to meetings, again, meetings are a very necessary way of getting work done. But as humans, we tend to turn it into something that it shouldn't be. So I reckon that we tend to have too many meetings. Mm. And look, it's not unusual for me to work with senior management and, and ask them the question, you know, how much of your core working hours in a week would be spent in meetings? And they would reply 80 to 90% of their time. It's crazy, isn't it? It, it, it really is crazy. And and they're screaming out for time to think yes. and to get their priorities done. But what tends to happen is they spend nine to five meetings and then they spend five to nine trying to get everything else done. Yeah. And of course, their work-life balance goes out the window and it's not sustainable. So we tend to have too many meetings. We 
we'll have meetings that are too long mm. and you know i reckon that the one hour time slot in the calendar and outlook or google or whatever it is it, it's it just, just becomes a fault. default yes yeah. <laughs> why do meetings need to take an hour um i try not to have meetings that are longer than half an hour mm. and even then i've got a friend who's just written a book um called the 25 minute meeting yeah. um uh, lincoln zaley talks about this idea that we can, if we're focused, we can get as much done in 25 minutes as you can in an hour. Yeah. You know, it, it comes- isn't it a funny thing when, when it, it feels like we've run out of things to talk about in a meeting, but the time's not up yet? I think a lot of the time we default to sitting there and just padding out the conversation and we can all feel it. We all know when this conversation has really run its course but for some reason, we feel like we need to reach the top of the hour. It's a strange That's right. It's a strange human trait. What's that principle you mentioned in the book, that the idea that the work will fill the space? I can't remember the name of it. It starts uh, the, with P. The, the, the Parkinson, um, the Parkinson uh, principle. principle. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Where the, the work will always expand to fill the time available to it. it wouldn't it be great to you – because know, it's not a – you know, it shouldn't be a bad look. It, it shouldn't be – a sign of defeat if we all look at each other and say, hey, we've done what we came to do. Um, see you later. Great. Have 10 minutes back. It should back. be a sign of, of accomplishment. Yeah, and, but it's um, not. <laughs> I heard a really nice phrase um, a client of mine used um, recently where he came into a meeting and he said, I've got a hard finish uh, in 25 minutes or yeah. whatever the time was. And it just kind of really reset everyone and yeah. go, okay, well, we need to get this done in that time. Yeah. And it, there was no, there was no arguing about it. He said, "I've got a hard finish. I'm out of here." Yeah. And nobody resented for it, and no. we just focused and got it done. What are we going to do about people in organisations? And it seems that the higher the level, the worse the problem is. Back to back meetings. So when you mm. put this problem together with the first problem we spoke about, we've got people who spend eighty to ninety percent of their day with back to back meetings. You know, you and I have both tried to have meetings with clients who are say, GM level or executive director level or whatever, and you can get in next Tuesday between 3 and, and 3.30 because that's their yeah. next spot. I mean, these are people who are authorized to make decisions. They're accountable for decisions that they're making, yet they have no time to think. They're expected yeah. to go into these meetings with a team of people who are full-time in a topic. They're expected to come in, absorb information, engage in the conversation, and then at some point make a decision. And they do that all day long, back to back to back to back. And then if they do ever get back to their desk, they face problem number one, which is an overflowing inbox of email in which some of them will be important. Of those 200 in there, one or two of them or three or four will be important so they've got to check them all out. What are we mm. doing about these the mindset in organizations that senior leaders have to be in meetings all day long? Look, I don't think a lot has been done in most organizations. You know, I've seen organizations put in meeting protocols and you've got a poster up on the wall and things like that, but the reality is most executives are just booking themselves constantly into these meetings and again they become victims of their own schedule. Yeah. So I think that we need to take personal accountability of our own schedule and we need to not fill the the glass up to the top all the time. There's no wonder, you know, the water spills out if we're always filling the glass up to the top. So I think that our schedule should have a fill to this level mark. And I reckon for most people, it should be about 60% of your core working hours is available to meetings mm. and 40% you protect and you aggressively protect. Yeah for getting your priorities done. And that's during your core working hours. 
So that's a, a personal mindset that needs to be in place. But of course, the culture of the organization needs to allow that to happen. Yeah. And that's where leaders need to step up and actually create the space for people to do this. And they need to be leading by example. So if a CEO is in meetings constantly, well, then everyone follows yeah, that that's right. lead. They see it as a sign of seniority, as a senior, yeah. as a sign of of working your way through the hierarchy, because that's what my boss does. So once I've got back-to-back meetings scheduled through my week, I'm, I'm on the cusp of making it. Uh, it's a sad story, and um, and it's one that we see repeated over and over in organizations. And as you say in the book, and as you've said tonight, people just don't have time to think. They don't have time mm-hmm. to make good decisions. And then they've got to spend time between after five o'clock catching up on all the stuff that they couldn't do because they were in back-to-back meetings, and then bang, all of a sudden their relationships outside of work, which are the most important things in their life, begin to suffer. It's a, it's a sad tale, but one that we see repeated over and over again. And in too many organizations, being busy is a badge of honor. Having a take-home pack printed for you because you're so mm. busy at work to get your reading done is a badge of honor. Mm. And it's just a, a mindset change that that we need to well, you, you, people like you and me are constantly working on Dermot. So that's that's number two. Is there any before we move on to number three? Collaborate. Is there any other main points that we need to nail down here in the way that we congregate? Look, I, I'm I'm on a, a mission in organisations to help them to create 100 percent less meetings. Yeah, and by that I mean we could easily reduce the number of meetings we attend by 25% without having a significant impact on results. In yeah. fact, I think your results would go up. Yeah. Um, I reckon that we could have 25% shorter meetings. I reckon we could invite 25% fewer people to yeah. meetings. Yeah. And we could have 25% less wasted time in meetings without a lot of effort. So those incremental changes would have a dramatic impact on the productivity for ourselves and, and for our team. So, you know, I'd love for your listeners to just take that away and, and think about how could I make those little changes and could I see a big productivity boost from that in, in a short period of time? I reckon they could. And are they, is that what you've just described there, one of the little projects you get your clients to work on? Say, so, okay, let's just try this for a period of time. Let's have fewer meetings. Let's invite fewer people. Let's have shorter meetings. How do you actually get them to do that? Because it sounds great to say it, but when it comes to the crunch and when we're in the habit of what we've just described, how do you get them to actually action that as a little challenge project? Yeah, look, I, you know, I, I would not describe myself as an expert in cultural change, but I realized as I was writing this book that it is about cultural change. Mm. And, you know, what I did was I surrounded myself with people who were experts in that. And, and I think the message I got really clearly was cultural change doesn't happen, you know, by this huge change initiative that goes on over years, really it, the successful ones are through a series of small projects. And I think projects are a really great way to create traction with this sort of work. I also believe, you know, when I'm working in some very, very large organizations, it's uh, foolish of me to go in and try and change the whole culture of a bank. So what I try to do is I focus on what I call microculture. So I can help you change the culture of your team and then your team will create ripples and start yeah. to influence the cultures around you. So, you know, let, let's be practical about this and let's just make some practical changes at the coal face. Yeah. So if you're listening to this and you really like the idea of reducing meetings, you know it's a bugbear, you know it's dragging down productivity, adding friction to the team, 
you were encouraging them just to take this head on, just to try that, but try it in your circle, just in your team. It, it will have a ripple effect if it's successful, but just be really direct and really practically minded about where you're trying this on and be really clear about what it is that you're doing with the people that you're working with. You know, whether it's a conversation, say, hey, you know, this is what I've noticed. I've been to X number of meetings over the last few weeks. These, you know, X number of them felt as though they went on too long and I maybe wasn't even necessary. So from now on, let's try doing this. Let's have fewer meetings. Let's let's have a target number of meetings. If we had 23 meetings last week as a team, let's try and keep it under 10 this week or whatever the case may be. Is that what that's what you're encouraging? Not to try and t- change the world, but just to have a mini project that's very tangible. That's right. And, and recognize that you can control your own productivity. You can lead the productivity in your team and you can influence the productivity in the teams around you. So, you know, with that framework in mind, your role is to try and influence those around you and say, hey, we're trying to work this way. We believe this is more productive and we'd love to get you to help us to do that. And what tends to happen is you then become the team that other teams look at and aspire to because Mm. they think you guys have have it nailed and and then they maybe start to work differently as well. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. All right, we're, we're talking to Dermot Crowley about being a smart team. We're talking about what are those things that add friction to a team? There are three main ingredients that add friction to a team. We've talked about the first one, which was comms, uh, largely about email and the way we have allowed it to become this beast that weighs us down. The second is where we congregate and the meetings that we have and, and whether we're having too many of them that go for too long and include too many people. We all know that the answer to that is yes, we are. And what is it that we're going to do about it? And the third one is about the way we collaborate. Dermot, talk us through some of the common woes you see around the way that we collaborate. What are the bad habits that we're in and what's it costing us? Sure. Look, there's lots of ways that we collaborate. And what I tried to do with this section of the book is is really focus on what was going to be most beneficial for people. And I think projects is probably the common way that we collaborate with other people in organizations whether they're formal projects or informal projects, I often find that I'm working with people who are not project managers and yet they're managing projects. You know, they're managing complex bits of work that uh, involve multiple people and and they involve more than one task. So I think that there's a lot of room for improvement for most people. This is a type of work that we're kind of expected to just get across and to manage well, but no one ever teaches us how to do this. And sure, you can do a project management course or something like that, but that's usually overkill for most workers. Well, what they really need is a, a simple way to break the work down and to, uh, you know, I think one of the really key ingredients here is to make work visible across the team. Too many projects are managed in people's heads or in an Excel spreadsheet somewhere. Yeah. And it needs to be much more visible than that so that we can all get around it and work out, okay, where are we at? What needs to happen next? What needs to get into your schedule next week so that we can keep this thing moving forward? Hey, German, I, I'm not a um, was a, an acolyte or a disciple of Agile, but I've been working in quite a number of Agile projects recently. 
And I've got to say, there's something I really like about standing at the wall every day and mm. seeing people talk to a card and saying, this is what I did yesterday. This is what I'm going to do today. And these are the things that are blocking me from getting my work done. There's something magical about that transparency and accountability. Have you had a lot to do with the agile work? Look, I've been a bit like you. I, I'm not a, an expert in that, um, but I see it every day in the organizations that I'm working in. And I too, I love the visual nature of these mm. post-it boards and and things like that. And, and you know, I'm a big fan of technology. So um, when it comes to personal productivity, I've always been a huge fan of organizing yourself using the, the tools that are at your fingertips like Microsoft Outlook or Gmail or whatever it might be. But when it comes to projects, I'm also a big fan of technology, but not necessarily of the high-end tools like Microsoft Project. Um, I'm much more engaged with um, some of the cloud-based tools that we've had come online recently, like Trello or Asana, Trello, yeah. or now Microsoft have a very similar tool called Microsoft Planner. And the very, very simple visual boards that you can create on your computer screen. But the cool thing is they're shared in the cloud across your team. Mm. And I use them a lot to collaborate with my team and, and to get those bigger chunks of work done. What is it about organizations and the habits that we're in that makes collaboration one of these hot button issues or collaboration or, or lack thereof of collaboration? What are organizations generally not very good at doing? Is it just is it being open and honest about what we're working at, working on? Is it is it that as organ as individuals in an organisation, we're always feeling a bit protected? We don't want people to really have that visibility about how much time it's taking me to do X task or what quality I'm doing it to. Is is it a protection thing that stops us from collaborating, or is it because we don't want to be the one guy or girl who's being loud in cubicle land or? We don't know who to go to. What What are the things that are stopping us? I'm really intrigued as to why we're so bad at collaborating. Look, I reckon it's less to do with, um, you know, uh, having some sort of a, a protectionist attitude where we, we don't want people to see what we're doing. There's probably a bit of that. But I think one of the really key issues is the fact that there's no consistent platform that everyone uses. It, it's quite funny when it comes to personal productivity. There's two main types of actions that people need to manage. There's um, meetings mm. and then there's tasks. Yeah. So everyone's week is made up of a combination of both of those things. Yeah. Now, when it comes to meetings, there is a uh, one single consistent tool in the organization that everyone uses to manage their meetings, which will be the calendar in Microsoft Outlook or, yeah. or Gmail or whatever they're using. Yeah. And there's a peer pressure for everyone to use that because it's only a strong as you know the weakest link it's only when everyone is using it does it become a really powerful platform yeah so everyone uses that but when it comes to how people manage their other work their tasks and their priorities everyone's got their own system and there's no peer pressure nobody really cares how you manage your priorities yeah as long as you do what you need to do by the time i need you to do it that's good enough and i reckon that that tends to come to the, the surface with projects because a lot of project management is actually task management at a high level. Mm. And you've got lots of people on the project team who are all managing this project. And it doesn't matter how beautiful your project plan is. You can have Gantt charts and dependency diagrams across the wall. It doesn't matter. 
if there's a disconnect between the project plan and what people are actually, actually doing, doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. And, and that's if we've a, all got different tools and systems, it's it's chaos. Yeah. And again, that's what it's, it's, it's starting to sound like I am an agile disciple, but that's, again, where agile is so fantastic because mm. you literally stand at a wall with cards on a wall if you're a, a team that's located together and you point to a card and say, that's what I'm doing today. And if you stand yeah. there and say that two or three days in a row, people start questioning, how come you're still working on that card mm. that you said you were doing on Wednesday? It's It's an amazing amazingly simple way to get people talking and, and the spontaneous collaboration that you see, you know, after stand-up, when someone says they're working on a certain thing, someone else in the team will say, hey, I didn't realize you were working on that. I've actually mm. already done a bit towards that. Let's have a quick meeting. And, and it works yeah. really nicely because if we don't do that, and it doesn't have to be agile, but it does have to be some visibility, some conversations about what we're working on day to day. If we don't have those, there are just so many missed opportunities for avoiding rework or putting yeah. together a more quality piece of work or just tapping into someone who has some knowledge or skills or some experience that you just don't know about. The missed opportunities, imagine if you could add those up, Dermot. Imagine Absolutely. if you could add up the missed opportunities across businesses in Australia because of lack of collaboration. We'd be talking in the zillions of dollars. Totally, totally. And all these organizations are screaming out because of the lack of resources and they have to do more with less. But if they just tightened up how they manage their their work and if they got rid of some of this friction, you would find that they would actually get a lot more done with the resources that they've actually got. Well, that's a nice way to end it, Dermot. We've talked about friction. We've talked about the three things that we need to keep our eye on because we want to be a team not in a state of friction, but in a state of flow. We need to keep our, our eye on comms, the way we communicate, what we do when we get together, that when we congregate, and the way that we collaborate. And thinking about those things and just putting in some really obvious practical solutions to those common problems are going to move us towards being a team in a state of flow. Because as you said at the beginning, you can do all this great work on yourself and becoming a more productive, effective person, a motivated person, but you're operating more often than not within a team and within a culture. So it has to be something that we do together. Yeah, I obviously love talking about this stuff. And I and, um, just like to say thank you so much for taking the time to read the book and really getting the message of the book so uh, so keenly. So thank you for that. And thanks for all your listeners to, um, to listen in. And hopefully this was useful. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dermot. And that was Dermot Crowley. I love talking about teamwork, the real life stuff, the day-to-day -day issues that make working in a team a rewarding pleasure or a soul-destroying chore. There was so much gold in that conversation. One of the many things I'll remember is that universal trait of struggling teams, the idea that they're so busy, their work is so hard, the pressures of time and resources are so constraining, everything's on fire, everything's an emergency, and worse, no one else understands. That mentality, one that I encounter constantly in the work I do, is a tragedy. Yep, I mean that word a real living tragedy for the human beings that have to spend their time working in that environment. And as Dermot pointed out so often, the culture of dreary panic is a reflection of the leadership itself. I'll share that and the rest of the lessons I took from my conversation with Dermot on the Lessons Learned page from this podcast. 
you'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teams with an S dot guru slash podcast. You can connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Oh, 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 oh